0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John six sixty 60-70. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? This is the word of the Lord. Praise,
1: Praise be, be to Christ.
0: Christ.
1: Thank you so much for reading that very, very interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Lim. If I haven't had a pleasure and privilege of meeting you, I've been here since 2016, serving at Christ Press as a scholar in residence, but also at Vanderbilt Divinity School serving as a, uh, a faculty member in the history of Christianity. Um, delighted to be joined by many scouts, one of whom includes uh, one of the leaders uh, is, happens to be one of my colleagues, Dave Michelson, who wears uh, shorts today. So I should tell Scott all that I've, I've never been a scout, I would love to wear shorts next time I preach. Um, <laughs> then maybe more an eschatological ideal than actual reality, but we'll see. All right, well, if you're able and willing, let's uh, pray together as we look at uh, the Word of God. Gracious Lord, as we repose ourselves to be reminded of whose we are and to whom we belong, we are also able to see, catch a glimpse of your calling, your journey, your interactions with the disciples, many of whom no longer walk with you after a certain point. This is indeed a hard teaching. Who can accept it? May your spirit work deeply within us to bring us to the truth and the beauty and goodness of you in this text and allure us to come closer to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there was a uh, 6th century uh, Christian saint named uh, Gregory the Great who said in his uh, commentary on Job something really helpful about the Bible. As we have just read a text like this, some of you are saying, like, what have I just read? I don't understand it. Gregory the Great said something like this. He said the Bible is like a river that flows from the city of God. It is, at the same time, shallow enough that a lamb can walk around it and not drown, but also at the same time deep enough that an elephant can swim and never be able to touch the bottom. So as we read the Bible, as we have read this passage, some of us might have thought like, yeah, I get it 100%. Others of us might have felt like, I have no idea what it says. Well, there are both of that in this text. So let's delve into it as we finish our sermon series called He Gets Us. So as you have watched this video, and I couldn't help but notice that sort of a gap that exists, and who can bridge that gap. And gap, uh, by those gaps, I mean these. One Uh, The video montage is probably, I'm guessing, from the the context of the last two, three years in our world, Uh, you know, where there are a lot of kind of rethinking and revolutionizing of our thinking about identity, of our journey, have been brought up. So this is uh, very much 21st century. And yet, Christians have the, the audacity to claim, some Christians, that he gets us, that Jesus gets us, all of us. So the burden of proof on the part of the preachers for the last few Sundays have been to demonstrate to you that that is indeed the case. So today's burden of proof falls on me, and that is to show that Jesus was an influencer, and then he gets canceled by way of his crucifixion, and what that might mean for us today. And the text that we have uh, chosen for us, um, it was chosen for me, is John 6:60 6, to 70. So as we think about these ideas, I want to invite you to think about what are some of the highest core values in our world uh, today. I think one of the words that would come to my mind or come to your minds perhaps is the word freedom or liberty. Well, here in North America or the United States, that's not hard to do because especially if you're anywhere near the city of New York or know that image of the, the statue of what? Liberty. So it seems like from the very very earliest of days in our collective imagining of our national identity, something about liberty or freedom has loomed large in the consciousness. And but we have often phrased it as freedom from something or someone has been our current mantra. Um, there's a book entitled "Flight from Authority," uh, written by a Princeton religious studies scholar, Jeffrey Stout who argue that modernity can be best explained by our efforts to fly from religious authority, either the institution of the church or the God of Jesus Christ, as in the case of the rise of atheism. Another helpful way to think about it by way of a book is the rise of expressive individualism, as this Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor so helpfully portrayed in his book called Sources of the Self, The Making of the Modern Identity. In it, Taylor argues that there are two distinct and fundamentally divergent ways of constructing the modern self. By modern, he means about 1600 onward. One would be Augustinian and the other Cartesian, named after the French thinker René Descartes, who famously argued that the only confident and consistent source of certainty was his own self. I think, therefore, I am. The doubting self... After he has doubted away, every other existence was the last thing standing. Therefore, I think, therefore I am. For Augustine, however, with all of his delving into self, as he does so pointedly in his book, Confessions, there was always God as the source of self and sustainer of the journey and security for the world against all odds. If, as you say, Paul, it's clear that in our world today is crying out for freedom from a lot of things and 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 aren't much of that justified today, you might ask, I would agree with you on a lot of points. We want freedom, all of us would desire freedom from political tyranny, as in the case of so many autocratic governments in the world in the past two centuries or in our current world and much before that. Who would say no to that? We also want freedom from inauthentic authorities, whether Nixon at Watergate or Bill Clinton with the Monica Lewinsky debacle, or many pastors and priests with sexual assaults. Many also have expressed desires for freedom from repressive male-dominated bondages, again as seen more recently in the hashtag MeToo movement. Another would be freedom from racialized discrimination, not only in the U.S., certainly catapulted by the events surrounding and after George Floyd in his death in Minneapolis, but also throughout the world after that, some of the montage that we have seen earlier in the video. So we can see how crucial a cultural reality and political concept it is to think about freedom from. Then we have to ask this question inevitably, what about Jesus? If he indeed gets us, does he understand our need for some kind of human freedom? Here in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, he begins to articulate this idea in a powerful, albeit surprising way. Jesus talks about freedom from, as well, but he talks about freedom from self. Freedom from self-constructed visions of God and the good life. Furthermore, he will talk about freedom into himself. So freedom from self and freedom into Jesus and his community. Jesus is teaching about self, savior, and society, and salvation. He would, John, the gospel writer would say in John chapter 8, Jesus told his disciples, If you hold to my teachings, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here he's talking about a conception of freedom, In a fundamentally different way, in a different directionality, he says, if you hold to my teachings and you become my disciple, so in your belonging to me and to my teaching, then and only then will you know true freedom. We actually need to get a sense of why and how the disciples of Jesus, all of whom were at this point Jews, began to find his teachings really hard to accept. As our scout brother read for us, uh, John 6.60 begins by saying, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? No kidding. I mean, I read this passage and was like, Whoa, i got to preach on this again. And so I began to think about how to actually make sense of it for our context today. So we really need to see this passage, John 6.60-70, to in its own context. So John chapter 6, as many of you know, is a famous chapter because here in this chapter, in the beginning, he feeds 5,000 people. 5,000 men, so at least about 10,000 people. When they counted 5,000 people, that usually meant men, which also meant a conservative estimate would lead us to conclude that there are at least about double that number in the crowds who got a free lunch. And we'll talk about the nature of their free lunch and why that became both a source of great anticipation and excitement, but also became a stumbling block for some others. Of course, f- f- people are excited free lunch if you follow hard after him. Imagine if you came to church that there will be free lunch every Sunday. So on the center aisle will be Jersey Mike's sub, on the, to my right will be um, Subway, to my left will be Public Sub. I mean, like, you just get that free lunch and to your heart's content uh, as much as you want that would be certainly a great way for church growth, wouldn't it? <laughs> Amen, right? And Jesus had it. Jesus has this opportunity to really make, make good on his promise. He delivers free lunch. And then it is at that particular pivot that he began to kind of, kind of unveil his identity in such a way that people began to question what it is that they were dealing with. And then, moreover, unfortunately, unfortunately uh, they walked away. But what is going to surprise us is that the writer of this story, the gospel writer John, tells us again and again, none of this took Jesus by surprise. So he's kind of kicking up a notch, right? It's almost as if he was starting to weed out those who are not really hardcore, following Jesus according to his own terms, rather than what they thought were the ideal of their newfound, trendy, and charismatic teacher. So let's, let me show you what I mean throughout this chapter, okay? Just the background to 660. Uh, in verse 14 of chapter 6, people, after this wonderful free lunch, they recognized, rightly or wrongly, that he was the prophet who is to come into the world. As we see in this context of John chapter 6, there's gonna be a back and forth about Jesus' identity and how he links up to the provision of manna from heaven and how the followers of Jesus rightly connected the possibility of Jesus being the prophetic figure as was already presaged in the Old Testament or Israel scripture. In verse 15, knowing that that's what they thought, Jesus knew that they were going to try to make him king by force as a way of political kind of maneuvering to stand up against the Roman imperium. He knows that that's what they're thinking, so he runs away. He withdraws himself, doesn't take the bait, and he goes up to a mountain by himself in verse 15, it says. And in in 16 to 23, there is kind of search operation. They're trying to find Jesus. And in verse 24 of chapter 6, the crowd realized that Jesus was not with the 12. So they get into the boat and goes in search of Jesus in Capernaum. I mean, think about all of that. So now Jesus is about to hit big time. I mean, he's been hitting big time. Now he's crescendoing his popularity with the feeding of the multitude. There's a frenzy to make him king by force. What ensues is a very challenging dialogue, which if I'd been there, if I'd been in that audience, in that live audience of listening to and engaging with Jesus, I would have been equally perplexed, equally confused, and ultimately be misled by what he was saying. I want you to follow and see how the many disciples were fixed on physicality and material concerns, whereas Jesus was fixed on metaphysicality and spiritual concerns, and why that might matter to us today as well. So the crowd asks Jesus in 625, Rabbi, when did you get here? They were curious, like, how did you get, get across the lake so fast? Jesus in the next verse says, You are looking for me only because you ate the loaves and had your tummy full. Saying, look, you're really excited about me because you got this free lunch and you came looking for me. And the crowd in 630 say, well, they ask him, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're linking that experience, this free lunch experience, with possibly this spectacular sustained experience of God, Yahweh giving manna for the people of Israel in the wilderness. Notice his uh, Jesus' punchline in 632. Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my father. Now, the troublesome phrase are these two words, my father. Because Jesus had apparently the audacity to claim Yahweh to be my father in ways that most would never dare to do. Who gives you the true bread from heaven? For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And to this, the crowd answered in verse 34, Sir, always give us this bread from now on. From now on, please give us this bread. Because they're thinking, okay, we're going to have not only on Sabbath day, but every day. Every day we're going to get this free lunch. could be from Jersey Mike's or, you know, whatever, you know, Publix or or Subway. We're going to get free lunch. Then Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Gets kind of weird, doesn't it? They're saying, "Lo, give us the free lunch every day. And Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will will never be thirsty. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Notice what it says, I've come down from heaven. Guess what? In verse 40, they were rightly confused, if not offended. And they say, wait a minute. Is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? So rightly they were confused and slightly offended even. Wouldn't you have been? You were saying to this guy, okay, you gave us free lunch, but we know your mom and dad. We know your mom and dad. You didn't come from heaven. What are you talking about? And we also know that, I mean, okay, you may, you may have given us a free lunch, but we know your zip code. We know your background. You know your mom and dad. We know that you're utterly of the earth, not from heaven. So, What are you on? What are you tripping on right now? We don't understand. Verse 46, Jesus responds. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus is not backing down. He's not backing down. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't didn't mean the confusion. No, he says, look, I came from heaven. I know this God of ours more intimately than all of you put together. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So if you believe me, what I'm saying, you have eternal life. Again, would that make sense to you? I mean, I would have been kind of confused. And he says again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. So again, he's setting up himself in a powerful contrast. He says, okay, in the Old Testament economy, in the economy of Moses, you, we got the manna, okay, that was a free meal, but then all of you who ate that meal from, you know, manna died. But here I am, I came down from heaven, and I'm here to give you this bread and, you know, this drink, and you will never die, you will never grow thirsty. Are you understanding? Are you following Jesus' logic? Because I think I am, but here comes a kicker yet again. Because he says Jesus said This bread is my flesh Well I'll give you for the life of the world Jesus said to them very truly I tell you Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man And drink his blood You have no life in you Guess what friends That's why some of the critics of Christianity In the first, first and second and third centuries Thought that Christians were cannibals Because look at the language of eating the flesh And drinking the blood Doesn't that sound goryish to you I mean, would you have understood it? I certainly would not have understood it. I, I would be stuck on the physicality, like, wait, wait a minute, I got this free lunch, I want free lunch, and he says I gotta eat him, drink him. That doesn't compute. Does it compute for you? You see, I think we need to understand, we need to be a little bit more sympathetic to those who are confounded by Jesus' teaching. We have the 2,000 years of accumulated teaching within the church, and many lay people and saints and sinners, all of them really thought rightly about and faithfully about Jesus. But they, in that live context, didn't have the advantage of hindsight. They were actually interacting with Jesus on live, like right here on cue. He's saying, okay, unless, unless, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life. He'd be like, what? I don't want to be a cannibal. I ain't about to eat you, drink you. That doesn't make any sense. But then he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So we all want eternal life. I don't want to die, not just Alpha Bill, but I want to live forever young. And then he says, you know what? All of you, if you want to live, you got to eat and drink me. Does that make sense to you? Again, it certainly would not have made sense. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them in verse 56. And then in verse 59, it says, the writer says, Jesus said these words, not in private, but in public while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Notice this. So he's not hiding out and saying this clandestinely to only 10 people or 12 people. He's saying this in public, in a setting much like this. In a public setting, in a synagogue, he's beginning to articulate his true identity, and unveiling his mission in a way that people are saying, hmm... I don't understand this. That's where we come to verse 60 today. On hearing that, all that, many of the people began to say, hmm, it's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? In the word, there is this. There's followers. They're disciples. They're not some kind of unconcerned onlookers. These are followers of Christ. They're finding what he's saying understandably hard to take. So three points emerge from this fascinating exchange between the crowd whom John calls disciples. They are not temporary believers. They saw something in Jesus, perhaps beyond materiality and physicality. They thought, okay, we hear, here might be a prophetic figure. Here might be our worthy king. And so he gave us that free lunch as a way to connect us to our history, our ancestors' history of manna from heaven. So this, might be, this must be someone truly extraordinary. So far, their thinking is not wrong. So far, they may be confused, but they're not about to walk away. So those three points that I'm about to share with you are as follows. First point is worldviews in class. Worldviews in clash. Second point is world makers' invitation amid the clash. Third would be following Jesus in this world, a mixed bag. So let's go to the first point, worldviews in clash. So Jesus, I think, was perhaps one of the OG influencers from one angle, right? I mean, he certainly had a meteoric rise in his popularity. No one really knew who he was. He came from the wrong town. Some kind of, you know, um, I don't know, whatever town you might think is the, the end of civilization. Like, oh, okay, he came from sort of there. Because they were saying, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he was already from the wrong zip codes. As far as you know, he didn't have the right pedigree of parentage. He didn't go to a right school, and yet he began to ascend in popularity. You know, miracles and profound teachings and raising the dead, you know, and and all of that. And free lunch uh, certainly helps. So he's kind of, you know, OG influences. However, as we're beginning to see this very clearly, his vision and version of human flourishing and how they, people, can rightly connect with God, starting with the Jews and then the Gentiles through his disciples, was going to be predicated on him setting the terms at a table rather than them. So it is really important that he was an influencer, all right, but he was going to set the terms according to his his own dictate and according to his own blueprint rather than rather than what they thought people thought. So as we will see, his worldview, the worldview of this influencer named Jesus, is gonna be at counter purposes to what we think or they thought was the good life or the picture of God. I don't know about you, but one of the saddest verses in all of the Gospels is read for us today. John 6, 66, where it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So the key word is disciple, and another key word is no longer followed him. That These were not, again, some casual onlookers. These were people who took the teachings of Jesus seriously to such an extent that they even came to the lunch event. That Jesus provided. So they didn't come knowing that there's going to be free lunch. They came knowing that this Jesus has something profound to offer in their life journey. And then they began to think of this. But then as a result of the things that Jesus said, from that point on, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It is really a sad verse. So we have to ask the question as to why. What triggered them to stop following Jesus? What triggered some of us here or some people in the world to say, you know what, I am an evangelical I am, you know, but I'm no longer with Jesus. I may be religious, I'm not religious, but spiritual, whatever it is, but Jesus, I don't know what to do with. And these are things that are not just, you know, important in the first century context, but here in the 21st as well. Could be our children, could be our spouses, could be our friends, could be our colleagues. What are these disciples that we read of in John 6? Evil people? I don't think so at all. It was just that when their worldview and the one Jesus embodied and expressed were fundamentally in a collision course, they ended up ducking in order to avoid damage. They wanted to adhere to their vision and version of the good life rather than that of Jesus because it really started to bug and kind of is a bug in the system that they said, "Mm, I got to get rid of this bug. It may be Jesus, but that's what it is. Now let me ask us, are we that much better or any better at all in our life. You know, the book of Job is has been people's favorite over many centuries and millennia. Uh, one, one scholar, David Burrell from Notre Dame, made a very important comment that, that the book of Job is a canonical counterweight, meaning that it's in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament as a countermeasure to this Deuteronomistic theology, meaning theology of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law, and whereas God says through Moses, look, I am giving you the law the second time to remind you that do this and you shall live, and disobey, you shall perish. So that means there seems to be a kind of one-to-one correspondence of obedience to God and material blessings following. The book of Job actually shows the opposite. Here is a, a righteous person named Job who obeyed God in all circumstances, and yet, rather than having great material blessings to follow, but he had his children dead, material you know possessions kind of exploded and robbed, and then he has his own physical ailment, and all of these things compounded made Job an abject you know horror to people his to his friends. They were like horrified to see what had happened to Job. So, the book of Job reminds us that material successes are not always a guarantee of divine blessing on us. And as well, material deprivation and poverty, there are not signs of divine curse. Although, we think that way a lot. Let me give you an illustration. So, when I was a graduate student, I had a friend from New York visit me in England. And he's someone that I used to you know, uh, know and, and was good friends with. And he was working for a financial services firm at, at that time in the late 90s. And he had made uh, the year before millions of dollars. And he came; he, was a, he, was, he had just gotten married a couple of years prior to that. And so he came to visit me on his business trip to London. And I wanted to show him to my pastor. I brought him to my, to my pastor and said, you know, this is my friend. And he works on Wall Street and he does this. And, and then, and then he, my friend went to grab coffee. And I said, you know, my friend is really, really blessed man. And my pastor said something I'll never forget. Um, uh, Bishop Joe Bailey Wells now. um, Joe said to me, Paul, you don't call that blessing. And I said, then what do I call it? A curse? No, it's not a curse, but God God has given these things to him in order to test what is in his heart. And I was like, no, I never. Are you sure about that? And he said, well, no, because you, though you're a Christian, but your way of thinking is no different from the world. You think just because this guy made, made you know, millions of dollars last year as an investment banker that he's a blessed man by God too. You don't know that. God may be testing him. God is, in fact, testing him. And that really kind of set me on a different way of thinking about myself, what it means to really flourish in the economy of God, and all of those things. That here is a guy who rather than... I mean, I was seeing him as a blessed man because there's material opulence. But for this, you know, a person of God... She saw it differently. She said, no, 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 no. Actually, this person, your friend, though millionaire that he may be, he may actually, God may be testing him as a a way of seeing what is really in his heart. Relatedly, Blaise Pascal in 17th century France asked this question. He said, if you love God only because of what God gives you, do you really love God? Let me say that again. Blaise Pascal said that if you love God because of what, give, what God gives you in this world, in terms of material possessions, then you don't, are you sure you're loving God? And he said, you forget, we often forget the giver for the gifts. We get the gifts, and we get so excited about the gifts, and we forget the giver himself. Later on in the 17th century America, Jonathan Edwards raised similar issues. Would you love God if God never really cared about you? Even if God were to damn and designate you to hell. Pastorally speaking, there was an unbearable weightiness to that question, I know. However, the question was nonetheless pressing. Would you love God and follow Jesus? And the question is why? What would make you stop following him? What if your conception of divine favor on you radically changed? What if your life fortunes radically changed? What if I, Paul Lim, were to lose everything? Would I still love God? These are hard and yet important questions because these disciples came to a point of a screeching halt and saying, okay, we're not going to follow Jesus anymore. We are often likely to say, yeah, we're not them. Are we sure? I'm not sure that I would have done any differently. And the, the fact that we are where we are and how we are today, according to the gospel writer John, is entirely a gift of gratuitous grace from God. You see, for these disciples, they are beginning to think, hang on, if what this miracle-working rabbi is saying is true, then what we have thought of as in the bread for every day being provided by this guy is not going to happen because he says that he's bread from heaven and I got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's not going to happen. So I am really confused about what we know, what we are beginning to realize is that following this guy and making him king by force isn't going to be a good thing, so we're going to stop following him. Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book, Brothers Karamazov, has this powerful chapter called The The Grand Inquisitor. And it's one that deals with this question profoundly. The Grand Inquisitor, you know, uh, comes to Jesus and says, you know what? You have overestimated human ability. We human beings are such simple creatures. What you should have done was to provide bread from stone. Turn stones into bread, right? One of those major three temptations of Jesus— The the grand inquisitor said, you know what? You have so overestimated human ability that what you really should have done was give us your bread. Turn these stones into bread because they would have followed you to the end. Yet you loved us too little and overestimated our ability too much that you didn't do that. And moreover, what you really should have done was to go to the very peak, the highest point in you know, in human history and jump yourself because then you will have had angels come and pick you up and people would have marveled at this spectacle and all the speculators, all the spectators would have become worshipers of this almighty and almighty God, all miraculous God, and yet you didn't do it. And the point that the writer is trying to get at is this, that Jesus in his unwillingness to provide for material possessions as if that is the end of all things, See, Jesus is using these material things, namely a free meal, free lunch, as a way of kind of going beyond, through, yes, but beyond them. Free lunch is great, but it has to go beyond that to point to Jesus himself, whom we are going to participate in this Lord's Supper. In this morsel of gluten-free bread or regular bread or wine or grape juice, what we are doing is not only proclaiming that Christ is alive, but also participating in the reality of Christ being our sustainer in all things, whether it is in drinking and eating and all things called life, that he's the beginning and end of our life. Let's move to point number two then, world maker's invitation amid the clash. Notice with me in verse 67. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. So notice this kind of scene of pathos, scene of sadness at one level. Right, There are lots of people who are following Jesus, yes? But at this point, after he began to say some tough things, many turned around, turned back, and no longer followed Jesus. Now what does Jesus do? He turns to the twelve and says, Hey, are you about to leave too? So let me ask you, friends, how would you read that, path, that, that verse? What tone of voice could we detect from Jesus? Does he sound desperate? Does he sound sad? Does he sound surprised? How do you read it? Notice the writer of the, the writer um, writer of the, the, the fourth gospel, John, wants the readers to know that this didn't take Jesus by surprise. None of this took by took him by surprise. At the same time, at the same time, he is saying this, and is very clearly there. Could be read as a desperado attempt on Jesus to hold on to at least a few, because there was a painful mess, desertion, and exodus. Imagine you have. I don't know. Some people care about social media a lot, and and others not so much. But let's say you care about it a lot. Let's say you have I don't know is ten thousand followers a lot? Is that is that a lot? No. Okay. Hell, is that a lot? I don't know. You don't know. Okay. All right. So um, let's say okay, hundred thousand. We can agree that's a lot. Yes, hundred thousand. But for something you have done or said, people cancel you so that your followers go from hundred thousand on January thirty first to uh, 7,000 on February 5th. That's a precipitous drop. Okay, So going along with the theme of influencer, Jesus had that drop, going from 100,000 followers to 12. That's a massive drop. So he's asking his followers, hey, are you about to leave too? Now, at one level, this is how we read it. We read it as if he's desperate. He's, we read it as she's, you know, kind of grasping at straws, like, okay, I'm really desperate. No, 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 that that could be, but there is another way to read that particular statement by Jesus. I think this is what Jesus is doing. If the gospel writer is to be trusted, that Jesus knew what was going to happen, that this didn't take him by surprise. Then, if that is the case, then what I think is going on is Jesus is issuing an invitation to pivot and rethink your own identity, and your own journey. Hey, are you going to leave too? It's not a statement of somebody who's really sad and desperate, like, oh, no, I'm about to lose the last 12. These are the last Mohicans, and I'm about to lose them too. No, no, no. What he's actually offering the 12 is an opportunity to rethink their own identity and their journey. What do I really think about Jesus? What do you really think about him? You see, um, for us, uh, my wife and our son, uh, the South has been a very good place. I've lived, you know, moved from Boston to uh, Nashville in 2006, and I've learned a lot of interesting things about the South, and I, I, so far, like it a lot. I uh, realize that you know, on Wednesdays on Franklin Road, there used to be traffic jams because Wednesday evenings there people are trying to go to their Wednesday evening midweek services. And I was like, wow, I've never experienced anything like that in Boston, Massachusetts, or Cambridge, England. I, I hear people talk about God a lot more. I go to Starbucks and I see people with their Bibles open and praying over meals. I mean, again, I've never seen that. In Boston or Cambridge, and yet I've seen a lot of it. People, you know, say, bless their heart, and, and then say whatever they want after that. Now, I never heard that expression until I moved here, bless their heart. I, I, I thought that was a good thing, but what I often heard was not always a good thing, but <laughs> be that as it may. Being in the South has a cultural overlay that allows you to believe in the credibility and plausibility of the Christian story. But, So many parents in the South are worried about their kids going up north to the Yankee land or to, like, West Coast or, you know, blue zones. We're in the red zones. And, you know, you've talked about it. I have talked about it. And I understand what that is like. But then, but then, undergirding all of it is our fear that outside of our ecosystem and bubble, people are going to challenge our faith system so much that we're going to have to lose, we're going to end up losing it. Understandable Fear. But think about Jesus' invitation to pivot and rethink your own identity. See, moving away from here will give our young, you know, teenagers or other people a great opportunity to really think about the Christian identity, Christian story. Is this true? Like, you're not surrounded by everybody who thinks like you. Now you're having to think like, is that really true? The 12 are now faced with this reality. They were part of this larger crowd of followers who got free lunch. And now Jesus invites them and asks them, hey, are you about to leave too? Because what Peter will say is, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? Because you have the word of life. Numerically downtrodden and disadvantaged and minoritized, yes, that all of those things are true, Lord. Yet what you have is something that none of these massive people can offer. You may be no longer an influencer. You may be a loser in the eyes of many in the world. Yet you got something that they don't have. So authenticating our agency and desires, Jesus is asking you, you, hey, you, yes, that's right, you, what do you want to do? Who do you say that I am? It is an invitation to side with Jesus, the loser, not influencer. Moving to my third and the last point, following Jesus in this world, a mixed bag. You know, Kevin's a preacher, and there are other preachers here and other kind of speakers. You know, you kind of write up your speech or lesson, and there are parts of it that you like and parts of it that you don't like. Like, okay, the part of this sermon I'm kind of giving you the the, how the sausage is made, as it were, is kind of... I don't like this point that much. But I have to wrestle with it. I have to kind of let it, let, it, let it sit there. And that is, it's a mixed bag. Why is it, I mean, can we not tie a nicer kind of bow, theological bow around this and come up with something better? But I think the text kind of isn't letting me go there to a nice point. One of the nicer things might be that, that there's a doctrine of predestination that is alluded to, if not expressly taught here. Jesus says, I know who's going to betray me. So Jesus has foreknowledge, maybe part of the divine plan. That might be of some comfort to you, certainly has been for me. Yet for many of the more tender conscience people, they were always troubled by Judas Iscariot. He was with Jesus from day one. He was with his part of the OG 12. And yet even Jesus could not correct his ways, we say. So what gives? I started a sermon with a reference to Augustine. And I want to end with Augustine here. His idea of the church on earth here has influenced the Reformed doctrines of the church. That is, whether it's the PCA, PCUSA, EPC, or the Episcopal Church, and the Catholic Church, in fact. The earthly church, the church militant, is not yet perfected, Augustine said, Although it has already been infected by the Jesus virus, so it's growing and waging war against our own self devised and satanical influence views of self, savior, and society. It's already doing something, but is not yet perfected. So it is that tensionality of already and not yet. But until the return of Christ, which will coincide with the perfection of the city of God, we will always have a mixed body, which Augustine called corpus permixtum. He talked about it in the sermon on the parable of wheat and tares. Basically, he says, leave it alone until the final judgment when Jesus shall return. Thus, while here and now, we need to exercise a judgment of charity. Choose love, in other words, rather than hate. Leave it to God while also pursuing the pruning pruning process. Never an easy task. We'll have Peters and Judases, Peters and Judases in our communities. And it's not our job to say, hey, you are Judas, and you're Peter. Leave it up to the Lord. In our communities, we'll have sadness, we'll have dying, we'll have tears and fears. But we press on. Knowing that Jesus, who knows all, all things, tolerated Judas and Peter, indeed giving Judas Iscariot the final opportunity to turn back from his errant ways, knowing that the Spirit will guide us into all truth about self, Savior, and salvation for far too many of us, starting with me, our faith is often fixed on physicality and material concerns. Maybe we're in it to make sure that God becomes our ultimate insurance policy, that God becomes a guarantor of our desires of the pursuit of happiness and goodness and truth and mercy. We should be moving more toward metaphysicality and spiritual concerns because Jesus said in his own Lord's Prayer you know, give us this day our daily bread. We are right to ask God of our daily bread because he will give it to us. But these are, these are real things that also point us as sacramental reality to the thing that is to come and that is already here. That is the presence of the kingdom of Christ, whose righteousness and whose desires are to transform us. So on that incomplete note, I will end this incomplete and imperfect sermon, knowing that God has always used our broken and flawed earthly vessels for his purposes. And to that surrender of desires and designs of Jesus, I want to encourage all of us to venture forth into that journey. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. The name that we invoke and the moment we do so, the Holy Spirit indeed prompts us and provokes us to worship and to seek after your truth. Lord, the passage that we have read and explained is a hard one indeed. There are a lot of things that we may not understand. But Lord, as we come to you, to this table, we trust and we surrender ourselves, knowing that you will continue to purify our our errant intellect and our desires so that you may become more real to us in our life journey. Thank you for the work of many scouts here in the sanctuary. And as we seek truth, beauty, and goodness in this world, may we always be guided by the truth embodied and love embodied in Christ. It is in his name we prayed. Amen.